Hello and welcome to Legacy of Brutality. It's me, your boy, Steven Spratling, aka Hollywood Steve, one half of the greatest horror movie podcast in all the known multiverse, Dead and Lovely. Aside from that, I used to teach a class on the undead at the University of Tennessee, and I've been watching horror films my entire life. And this podcast will be a learning experience for both you and me. I am not an expert in all things horror. I mostly just know horror from the 80s to now. I'm wanting to learn more about how horror cinema came to be. I want to know how we went from short, silent horror films to the horror films that we have today. What technological developments came about, what developments in in filmmaking, in acting, in makeup, uh, all of the things that got us to where we are. I want to know how we got there. So we're starting this episode by covering the early silent era. And I wanted to look at this period between 1896 to 1922 specifically because I think there were so many developments that I wouldn't want to pass anything over. But also there's a pretty good delineation uh, near the end of German Expressionism that uh, will bring us into our next episode, which will be about the development of the Hollywood movie system and the universal monsters. You see, film was an invention before it was an art. The development of film as an art form had to be preceded by the development of film as a technological achievement. And so we have people like W.K.L. Dixon and several other employees of Thomas Edison in New Jersey and the Lumiere brothers in France and, and so many others working in the 1890s to create this new artistic medium from a pretty recent development itself, the, the film camera. Most of the early films being made were just brief scenes of day-to-day life, really just testing out the applications of motion picture. The films being made by Edison's people were being displayed on the kinetoscope, which was a box with a peephole in the top, and you just look in. It only worked for one viewer at a time, but uh, he made a ton of them and charged, I think, like a nickel a view or something, so he was making his money. Uh, The Lumiere brothers in France, their cinematograph could both shoot and project film, and being able to project film is a huge development it's what makes way for the movie theater and the movie theater experience that is probably the most perfect design for consuming horror film the early projections would have been accompanied by live music or phonograph records they were never really silent films in the sense of people just sitting and watching a reel of no sound uh there there would have always been some sort of sound accompaniment and then the earliest developments uh, a single reel of film was about 10 minutes long so most of the the films that would be shown would be about 10 minutes and they would chain a, a few of those together to to make one showing but just imagine entering into a tent at a fair in the 1890s uh, wearing all the clothes in the world because it's the 1890s and you gotta have a hat and a coat and a waistcoat and a cummerbund and 
every single amount of clothing that could be thrown on you, you are currently wearing. Uh, and you wear, you walk in, uh, hopes of seeing an ankle, most likely. Oh my gosh, an ankle would be nice. You walk in, and you see motion picture for the first time. I mean, children, babies get this experience now, and we can watch the expression on their faces, but it, we, we've all grown up with it. But the, these were grown adult people walking in and seeing something they had never seen before. And it was amazing. But at the time, films were really still little more than novelties. There wasn't a whole lot of narrative to them or characterization. And while a lot of people began exploring the art of storytelling to, through film around this time, it was George Millais who first used the medium to create horror. Now, I may be butchering his name because my friend's pronunciation is terrible. But George Millais was the father of horror cinema. He was the one who brought horror elements to cinema and also created a lot of the effects that would be used early on in horror cinema. After seeing a demonstration of the Lumiere Brothers cinematograph, Malaise was looking for a way to get a camera to use as part of his illusion show. He was an illusionist. And his interest in film really was about being able to create new illusions. So he would use a lot of different editing and special effects to create these very interesting what come across as stage shows. Malaise kind of accidentally discovered the idea of editing, though there were other, others already working with editing at this time. Malaise was at, at one point shooting a, a scene of a street and passers-by and he got a, a jam in his film and he cleared the jam and then continued filming and then while watching the film back later he saw a omnibus omnibus was uh, basically a large carriage uh, of people going to work suddenly transform into a hearse it it was like the birth of the idea in his mind that you can create magic with film so he started investigating editing techniques that people were coming up with and coming up with his own techniques and he eventually invented or popularized techniques such as multiple exposures time-lapse photography dissolves and hand-painted color films you may not immediately recognize Miles by name but if you've ever seen that iconic early film image of a rocket sticking out of the moon's eye that that was Malaise. You may also recognize him from Martin Scorsese's Hugo, in which he was portrayed by Ben Kingsley. The film shows Malaise in the 1930s at a time in his life when he had basically been forgotten for a brief time before being rediscovered. And when I say Malaise is the, the father of the horror film, um, he, he wasn't making A Nightmare on Elm Street or anything. His films had horror elements presence of something supernatural monstrous or evil basically at the time the majority of the films of the 1890s were just continuous shots of some scene so a train pulling into a station or you know uh, people having a, a party in a garden the earliest attempts at storytelling and film were no longer than maybe a minute or two 
the movies that Melis and a few others were making were called trick film. Trick films used in-camera effects to create film illusion. So things like split screen, multiple exposures, fast and slow motion, those were all just elements they were using to create what looked like great illusions on film. But these trick films were experiments in what would eventually become the horror film genre. The House of the Devil is widely considered the first horror film. It was in 1896, George Millais. It definitely more resembles a vaudeville magician stage act, but it, it does have horror elements. It's got a bat transforming into the devil, who then uses magic to summon a skeleton and some specters, and they all eventually get scared off by a big crucifix. It really sounds like horror, but I promise you if you watch it, it's way funnier than it is scary. And because of the bat transformation, some people argue that The House of the Devil is also the first vampire film. Though, a bat transforming into the devil is not the same as a vampire. I, 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 don't, I don't think that is correct, but that's fine. It, it, at the very least, it's the first indication toward a vampire film. And just to put The House of the Devil into some historical perspective, Bram Stoker's novel Dracula was published in May of 1897, which is months after the release of The House of the Devil, uh, because time is crazy. And The House of the Devil deals with one of the primary sources of horror in the early horror films, and that is the devil and hell. And Faustian bargains get a whole lot of play in the first couple of decades of film. Also, as I said, the crucifix as a weapon against evil is uh, a prevalent image throughout early silent film. Malaise in particular turned to the devil as his antagonist often. In his career, Malaise made six different versions of the Faust story. So the, de the devil was an easy villain to lean on, it seemed. Around the turn of the 20th century, filmmakers began introducing more basic editing techniques and a concept of film narrative. Just one year after inventing science fiction films with a trip to the moon, the one with the moon with the rocket sticking out of its eyes, uh, which is also one of the most influential films in history, Lex King, in 1903, Malaise directed The Infernal Cauldron, which is <laughs> another trick film that <laughs> involves Satan tossing human victims into a cauldron that then spits out flames, and then their ghosts rise from the cauldron and turn into fireballs that attack Satan until he leaps into his cauldron in what seems to be suicide. There's a really good hand-painted print of it that you can see on the film's Wikipedia page. And that'll also give you the experience of what a hand-painted print would have looked like because they are really pretty. They look, they look really good. Also, you can see how interest in making film more lifelike was there from the beginning. Another pioneer in trick films who also relied on the devil in his films was Segundo de, Segunda de Chamon. Again, I am not good at pronouncing French names. Chamon was employed by Charles Pathé. Hey, Pathé. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> He's Charles Pathé. Uh, Pathé had seen Edison's kinetoscope in London 
around 1896 and decided to expand his uh, phonograph business to start distributing cinema projection equipment. And he also got the patent rights for Eastman Kodak film in Europe. So, uh, making that money. By 1901, Pathé's company was making its own films, and Pathé wanted to compete with Malay's films because Malay's films were the most uh, fantastical. So, one of those attempts to compete with Malay's is Shimon's 1908 The House of Ghosts which is believed to be the first depiction of a haunted house in film. It has all the elements of a haunting, but it seems, that watching the film, that there is a demon controlling it. It would be a possession film, but that's fine. Whatever. The House of Ghosts incorporates several great tricks and gags, including some quality stop motion. Highly recommend checking it out. Director Jennifer Kent drew some inspiration from it and used footage from the movie in 2014 film The Babadook. As I said earlier, during the silent era, a one-reel short ran for about 10 minutes. By 1906, uh, the idea of a feature-length film was introduced by the Australian production The Story of the Kelly Gang. It was about six reel, 60 whole minutes. Many other filmmakers were experimenting with longer films, and the success of The Story of the Kelly Gang would help to eventually push the industry toward five real features as a common practice. One of the first full-length feature films with horror elements is also a, Italy's first full-length film, 1911's L'Inferno. The film is an adaptation of Dante's Divine Comedy. It's known for its stunning and disturbing visualizations of hell and intimidating presentation of the devil. Despite the fact that it's not a horror film, you can see how it would be an inspiration for future horror films. Throughout the first two decades of the 20th century, a lot of new film techniques were being developed. The use of artificial lighting, uh, the POV shot, insert shots, along with the introduction of cross-cutting. Cross-cutting is when you have two parallel actions and you uh, cut back from one to the other, giving the illusion that they're occurring at the same time. Because films had jumped from one reel now to five reels, kind of necessitated the introduction of specialist writers. And most of the time they were asked to adapt already popular stories and novels or plays to the screen. The intertitles they would write that set scenes or contained lines of dialogue became the norm around 1908. And by 1912, intertitles with dialogue in the middle of the scene were common. This made characterization and storytelling so much easier. At the time, the style of acting was much more emotive. It, it kind of had to be to be captured on the stage. Screen acting, of course, as we know, is, is not the same as stage acting. So there was this pretty long period in the silent era where a lot of acting was overly emotive and perhaps melodramatic. This is also a time when Darwin's writings on evolution were becoming more prominently accepted, as well as a time of increased religious fervor in some areas of the world, very specifically the United States. So it's, it's no surprise that Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde would be in the zeitgeist, as it is about a man struggling with his animal nature. From 1908 to 1914, there were nine adaptations of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> There'd be seven more by 1941. So the story was really getting a lot of play. And the interest is almost always the same. How do we control our 
desires, our nature, our internal rage, all those things. The horror draws on the darkness in our own hearts. It's a darkness that we would be mortified to have revealed. It also relies on the fear of losing control, especially when it's to our own desire. That first adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was in 1908, and it also happens to be the first American horror film. It's also one of a bunch of lost films. Lost films are films that we know existed, but there are no known prints of the film, so it is essentially lost. We know that Otis Turner directed an adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that ran about 16 minutes and received some critical praise, but we may never know what that film looked like. In fact, three of those seven early adaptations of Jekyll and Hyde are currently lost films. Another film adaptation that was also considered lost until the 70s was Edison Studios' 1910 adaptation of Frankenstein. Frankenstein is, of course, one of the OGs and another tale of science run amok that instead of pitting man against himself like Jekyll and Hyde, pits man against his creator. It's a pretty quick 14-minute film that tells a variation on the Frankenstein story, but it deliberately seems to de-emphasize a lot of the horrific aspects of the story and focuses more on the psychological elements. It also has a mystical resurrection instead of a scientific one, but the resurrection scene is really well done. It's basically uh, some sort of skeleton covered in something making it look like a human form uh that they lit on fire and then they show the film in reverse so it looks like this fire creates this skeleton that then gains this form it's a pretty cool special effect i recommend checking it out the film also uses a common technique for edison films that was also used by others like dw griffith it's called film tinting and it's used to set a mood or portray night or day usually. In Frankenstein, they use amber, rose, red, and blue tints. Uh, the amber was used for a daytime interior. The rose was for low-lit night interiors. Red represented fire, and blue was used for night. Another work that would see a lot of adaptations before 1940 was The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was adapted six times. The most noteworthy of those early attempts was directed by Albert Capellani in 1911 under the employ of Charles Pathé. Capellani's adaptation is of particular interest because it's considered one of the first horror films with no attempt at humor. But just two years later, we would get into one of the first major movements uh, toward artistic filmmaking, and that is German Expressionism. The Student of Prague was released in 1913. It's based loosely on Edgar Allan Poe's short story, William Wilson, which is about a doppelganger. The film has such a knowledge of film techniques up to that point and such a great use of set design, uh, mise-en-scene, the, basically the everything that's within the shot. Such a great attention to everything going on in the shot well acted uh, and well written the student of Prague would elevate film from an experimental medium to an art form in the film a student makes a bargain with a sorcerer who gives him riches but also creates this doppelganger of the student who follows the student around and thwarts all of his efforts to woo a countess 
The film contains a very convincing mirror double effect created by the cinematographer Guido Sieber. And the German audience is connected with the film for sure, because it would be remade three times. Once in 1926, again in 1935, and more recently in 2004. The star of The Student of Prague, Paul Wegener, was working on his first film role. He had acted on stage up to this point. And while filming The Student of Prague, he heard a Jewish folk tale about a creature called a golem. Wagner and Henrik Galin, who would go on to write Nosferatu, co-wrote and co-directed the film, and Wegener would star as the primary antagonist in The Golem in 1915. In the film, an antiquities dealer finds a golem in the ruins of a Jewish temple and resurrects it. And of course, the golem proceeds to fall in love with the antiquities dealer's daughter, who just likes him as a friend, so he goes on a killing spree. Talk about toxic masculinity, am I right? The film is partially lost, and the 1917 follow-up, The Golem and the Dancing Girl, is fully lost. The second film is a spoof Wegener made of his original film, so it makes it one of the first horror film spoofs, and probably one of the few instances of someone spoofing themselves. Both The Student of Prague and The Golem would be major influences on German films following World War I, but they did have that whole World War I and Spanish flu pandemic there for a little while so uh film took a back seat for a while film resources were scarce a lot of the film that was being used was being used to film the war itself so there, there weren't a lot of of creative films being made after the war germany's decision to invest state money into film production actually ended up making germany hollywood's only competitor by 1920 but the experiences of the war and the Spanish flu of 1918 and 1919 drove artists to create darker, more expressive films in the 1920s. German expressionism was about experimenting with bold new ideas and artistic styles, and these filmmakers were reacting against realism. Expressionist filmmakers focused on creating set designs that were distorted, with designs painted on walls and floors to represent objects, light and shadow. Common themes were madness and betrayal. The classic Cabinet of Dr. Caligari was written over a six-week period during the winter of 1918 and 1919 by Hans Janowitz and Karl Mayer. Neither had any connection to the film industry, but they wanted to write a story that was inspired by a circus sideshow in which a man performed feats of strength while hypnotized. Janowitz had served as an officer during the war and left the war embittered with the military. Mayer had pretended to be insane to get out of service. This led to numerous intense psychological examinations, and his military psychiatrist would serve as inspiration for Dr. Caligari. They also took inspiration from the work of Paul Wegener. You remember from earlier, the golem, and he was in he was in the student of Prague. Through Fritz Lang, they were able to set up a meeting with the head of production at Decla Bioscope and sell their script. Uh, Fritz Lang, my absolute favorite silent film director directed my absolute favorite silent film which is metropolis he is a beast we won't be talking much about him though <laughs> this episode uh but fritz lang introducing the the guys who wrote cabin of dr caligari to the head of production at decla bioscope is is one of my favorite little tidbits of how the first real horror film got made because I would say that I think The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is the first 
the first real recognizably horror horror film others like student of Prague have those elements and they're they're wonderfully done and de definitely are horror films but they just they don't read quite as well to current audiences i don't think i think the cabinet of dr caligari stands up as a, a, still a very watchable great horror film to this day even a hundred years later and while the story of the film is not its most enduring legacy, it is worth noting that the twist ending reveal is likely the first use of an unreliable narrator in film, which is a pretty big deal considering how often horror movies have relied on unreliable narrators. Herman Varm was brought on as a production designer and he brought in painters and stage designers Walter Ryman and Walter Rorig. Together they decided to create this skewed dreamlike sets that distorted geometry and indicated the interior states of the mind of the characters. The artists were given free reign, and unbelievably, if you've seen the film, the set design, costumes, and props only took about two weeks to prepare. The end result is this dark, bizarre, chaotic, unhinged world. The story of a mad doctor controlling a patient from an insane asylum to commit murders for him plays on fears of being controlled by an authority which answers to no one. While it's most often considered an art film today, it actually did really well with German audiences in the theaters and actually got distribution in the United States despite restrictions on import of German films following World War I. And beyond that, it would go on to have profound effect on cinema from Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin to the style and content of Hollywood films in the 20s and early 30s, and a major influence on the horror film genre as a whole. Later in 1920, uh, Paul Wegener's prequel to his 1915 film The Golem, titled The Golem, How He Came Into the World, was released. Wegener was unhappy with his earlier attempts at telling the story he had heard on the set of The Student of Prague long ago. So he wanted to attempt to make a, a, a better version of that original Golem story. He brought on cinematographer Guido Sieber, who had shot the Student of Prague, and Carl Freund, who would go on to work as cinematographer on Universal's Dracula and as the director of Universal's The Mummy. He also brought back Henrik Galeen to help write the film. Unlike the original, the Golem has a more relatable art. He's predominantly helpful until the, star, the stars align in such a way to allow the demon Astaroth to possess the golem. Uh, he becomes docile again once he's no longer possessed. So the golem is less of a monster and more of a fearsome tool that could be used for evil. This actually reflects the feeling of many of the soldiers who fought in the Great War. As I said earlier, the first horror film that Malaise did was released months before Bram Stoker's Dracula. Stoker had already written and uh, had performed at a theater an adaptation of Dracula shortly before the novel was published just to establish his own copyright for any future adaptation. There was a film titled Dracula's Death that came out in 1921, but it was actually an original story uh, that didn't follow the narrative of Stoker's novel and just used the name Dracula. But in 1922, F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu came out as an unauthorized attempt at adapting Dracula. Writer Henrik Galin would attempt to make enough changes to differentiate the film, including making Count Orlok kill his victims uh, instead of, you know, draining their blood and turning them into vampires. 
uh, and making sunlight kill Orlok rather than just weaken him. Unsurprisingly, these two changes didn't prove to be enough, so Stoker's estate sued the producers of Nosferatu and won. All existing prints of the film were ordered destroyed, and very, very, very fortunately, a number of unlicensed copies survived to the present day thanks to a cult following, making it one of the earliest examples of a cult film. Nosferatu is a classic and a high-quality vampire film that imagines the vampire as a, a disgusting, ugly creature. <laughs> the design of the vampire is, is just disturbing, the, the teeth out in front, the just the way that he portrays he's portrayed as this like almost insect-like creature. He they use the, the fast motion to show him loading these huge caskets, like he's super powerful and super fast, but he, he, he seems alien in a lot of ways. He, he feels far more inhuman than Dracula would feel in, in 31. There's several other German expressionist films that I'm not covering just for um, the sake of brevity. But the thing is that German expressionism had this huge lasting impact on film in general and horror films in particular, but it only lasted from 1913 to the mid-1920s. Fritz Lang kind of maintained many of the elements of the period, specifically in Metropolis and M, but it, it really fizzled out by the mid-20s. The primary reason for the decline of German Expressionism has nothing to do with the techniques and style falling out of favor, though. It has everything to do with those technicians and stylists finding fault in their government. A number of those involved with the German Expressionist movement would relocate to Hollywood as Nazis gained power in Germany. And even though I could so easily transition to the end of this episode right here, I would be an idiot to not talk about Paxson, Witchcraft Through the Ages, which came out in 1922. This is a Swedish-Danish film that is so gorgeous and so revolutionary, so well shot, that to not talk about it would be a crime. It's based partly on the Malleus Maleficarum, which is a 15th century German guide for inquisitors. And it's filled with horror sequences featuring a tongue-heavy devil. Like, seriously, this, the, the, devil, the way this guy portrays the devil was tongue out, just wagging all over the place. Uh, scenes of torture and scenes of religious flagellation. The writer-director, Benjamin Christensen, used the elements of horror to depict the evil of the witch hunts and mass hysteria. The film was controversial, though highly praised in its day. One reviewer wrote, Do not let it be presented with music by Wagner or Chopin to young men and women who have entered the enchanted world of a movie theater. Uh, the Witchcraft Through the Ages, though, is just really attempting to expose a lot of hypocrisy and evils within the church. It, it shows the, the scenes of like religious flagellation as like sexually ecstatic and... There, there, there's definitely a lot of sexual energy to the, the torture, the the presentation of the implements of torture. It's, it's stands up and needs to be seen. It is, it is a piece of art. I may have missed one of your favorite early silent films. I may not have gone deep enough into the history for your liking. I understand that. Stick with me. This first season is a very general history of horror cinema. 
we've got all the time in the world to go deeper into these films in future seasons and to go deeper into all sorts of elements of horror. So stick with me. This is going to be fun. Also, check out my podcast, Dead and Lovely, for weekly reviews of horror movies from me and my co-host, intergalactic rock star Ben Eller. The very same Ben Eller who made the music for this podcast. Also, check us out on Twitter and Instagram at DeadLovelyPod or on our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash dead and lovely. You can also help us out by heading over to patreon.com forward slash dead and lovely and becoming a patron. That helps to fund both the dead and lovely show and this show itself. So head on over there, please, and become a patron. Next episode, we're going to talk about the rise of Hollywood horror films and the switch from movies to talkies. We're going to get into Lon Chaney, the Universal Horror Films, and so much more. I've been Hollywood Steve, and this has been Legacy of Brutality. Bye.